Welcome to Invest Stories, a podcast about real stories, real estate, and taking real action. Join hosts John Cooper and Kyle Robertson as they talk investing mindset and taking that first step. We all Booyah. have a story. Welcome What's to the Invest Stories podcast. I'm your podcast. host, John Hooper. Happy 4th of July, or as I like to call it, Give Back America Day as a Brit. Uh, you know, that, w- that was a tough one. Uh, we don't have an episode for you this week. We're taking some time out. Um, I'm going to Disneyland. Kyle's probably, I don't know, trekking the uh, Himalayas or something on the weekend. Uh, but we we don't have an episode for you. We're really sorry about that. Uh, we wanted to take some time out. But we want to thank you uh, for all the support and all the love and all the following and listening and feedback. We really do. Uh, we really do appreciate it. And we thought we'd give you a, a, a clip show. So there's uh, four or five clips here that are really good. They're really good from the show and things that have kind of stuck with me and, and really stuck stuck out in the conversations we've we've had with people. Uh, we need something from you. We need five star reviews and all that good stuff. Um, but also we need you to come along and participate. Do you want to be on a future episode of Investories paired up with a expert asking questions directly to them? Uh, things like how do you creatively find creative financing deals or how do you really start to build a fundraising syndication kind of engine? What does that look like? What CRM do you use? Maybe you got that question. Uh, or how do you build a house with no practical skills? That's uh, that's one close to my heart. So um, yeah, come hit us up either on social media, Investories uh, Pod on Instagram, or email us, Investories Podcast at gmail.com and uh yeah ask your questions and and come on the show and come and ask an expert we'll uh we'll figure out who that expert is the best one in our kind of roller decks and uh we'll get those those conversations rolling but anyway here's the uh, here's the dreaded clip show It's a great thing I can get. Uh, if you get me rambling, I'll just keep going. So that's what we like. We like the stories. We like the stories. I go by the silver. I go by the silver investor because I'm sober myself and I invest, but I also invest my time in people trying to get sober. And of course, I invest in uh, sober livings and uh, different housings and a whole bunch of fun stuff. So, so we usually ask people um, what what was their jump into investment? What what kind of was the spark or the the piece of education or the nugget advice of, of advice that got them kind of rolling? Taking that step back, in terms of that journey to to sobriety, sobriety, um, and uh, you know that's that's kind of a world that I've never had, fortunately never had to kind of brave through either myself or or friends um i've been quite lucky in in that regard and, and that kind of addictive kind of space what what did that look like if you if you don't mind diving into that for us uh, i mean i grew up uh in a bad part of here in arizona uh, my mom was uh had an addiction um i started at an early age age 11 into some harder stuff and uh, did that whole, I, I kept going. I didn't get sober until I was 23. In that time frame, I, I, I was a high school dropout. I was homeless. Um, I got, I, in that time frame, I received three drug felonies. Um, and, uh, it was a journey to get there. 
And finally I was done. I was sick and tired of being sick and tired. And um, my mom uh, finally uh, was sober at the time and she introduced me to this world. I wasn't ready for it, but I did meet some people where she worked. And uh, she did run one of the largest sober livings at the time in Phoenix. And she went over the numbers and the overhead and it, it got the my, my wheels spinning. And um, finally, one of those people that reached out to me where she worked, um, that's who I reached out when I was ready uh, to get sober. And I did the whole thing where you uh, rehab, sober living, three quarter houses and um, Finally, yeah, I just kept going on in the journey of life, learning how to live life. Yeah, learning, learning, I guess, that kind of that life away from, I guess, you know, there's a few things there, right? There's a network that you have when you're addicted and you have that kind of that network and that space that you kind of live in. So breaking free from that. What was the thing that that's that was the snap? What was the catalyst to say, yeah, I don't want to be this be like this anymore? Uh, well, the drug that I was doing, it makes you very paranoid. Um, I thought everybody was after me. Everybody was out to get me. Um, I had no friends. Uh, I was homeless living on the street. All I had was a backpack and, um, I just came to the conclusion like, man, this is not life. That something has to be better than this. And, um, I reached out, man. It, it was just, I was done. Yeah. And and I guess then it feels like the universe then provided you with the the kind of exit route, which is is kind of um, kind of a sweet uh, sweet kind of route out. And how long have you been sober? Uh, in June, it will be ten years. Congratulations, that's incredible. Thank it's, you. Um, Thank you. Yeah, that's a hell of a feat. I think to to see it from the outside and to see people, you know, in that space and then pull themselves away from it and and have that determination to make it stick. That's pretty, pretty powerful stuff. And I guess that then transfers the other way to, um, you know, building your knowledge, becoming an investor, being kind of obsessed with, um, you know, building, I think, you know, building businesses for sure, but also then building that kind of value to the community. Um, can you, can you talk me through how that kind of process went in terms of like learning real estate, but then also like figuring out that mission? I mean, just with my past, I mean, you have to be clever to get money to do things and you hustle, um, you learn sales, I'm, I'm selling drugs, selling this, selling that. And uh, I was using it all for negative reasons. And when I got sober, the person who helped me get sober um, pretty much said, you have all of this hustle and all of this, why don't you use it for something good? Um, my first year sober, I started a vaping company. Um, the vaping company did uh, relatively well. In its uh, first year, I did like six figures, but then it just became a uh, a race to the bottom, and it was no longer it was no longer fun. When my mom introduced the sober livings to me, um, I was really interested, and I knew I wanted to get into real estate. Um, but at the time, I was working five different jobs, running companies, and doing all of these things, and um, I was making good money. I was doing really well. So it took me a while. Um, I got sober in 2013, and then um, in uh, I got my real estate license in 2020, but it was really hard to even get there. Um, in 2019, I made a decision. Instead of putting work before my family, um, I decided to put God, AA, 
my family, friends, and then work. Uh, 2019 was my worst year financially. Um, between my wife and I, we made about $30,000. Um, and I had a lot of time on my hands. And so I started studying uh, to be a real estate agent. Um, before I started that process, I looked on Google and uh, seen if a felon can get his uh, real estate license. And everything I read said, probably can. And then I spent the money, took the test, passed the test. And then I looked one more time and it said, you might not be able to. So I started the process of getting my record set aside here in Arizona. You can't get expunged. You can get it set aside. Um, that took some time. And, um, I had a crazy experience of the people that I met with God working in my life during that time, uh, to get me to where I am at right now. And uh, eventually, um, I was able to get my real estate license. So talk us through that educational piece. Is there, is there specific books or courses or kind of um, people that you tapped into? Um, so at this time, uh, my mindset is still not right. Um, I still got hustle, but I'm still waking up whenever, no schedule, no nothing. And... Um, that crazy story. So I was still bartending at like mansions and parties while I was waiting to get my license. And one day I went to a party I, I and uh, at this party, um, there was a cornhole game. It had like a roof. It looked like a house. And I looked the company up and it was Stunning Homes Realty. And the owner of that was Steve. And so the, that was my contact. I started talking to him saying, hey, you're in real estate. I told him that I already had my real estate license and um, he was like, well, you hit the jackpot. Every large investor company agent is going to be here tonight. And at that party, I didn't know how to talk the talk, but Jamil Damji was there. Pace Morby was there. Uh, Steve Trang was his 40th birthday. Zach Keeps, uh, Templeton Walker. Um, all of these people are here. I'm getting business cards and I had done my YouTube university hearing about uh, wholesaling, astro flipping. I thought it was a complete joke and a, a gimmick, but listening to the conversations at this party, it was mind blowing. Like I just flipped an eight unit for a million dollars. I just flipped this. And these guys were genuine talking to each other. And I was like, I have to be a part of this. Um, at the end of that party, Steve Train gave me his number. Um, to come in and to hang my license with his brokerage. And again, uh, the record hadn't been set aside. The record three days later got set aside. I met with him, hung my license with him. Um, he was a uh, wholesaling uh, business coach. Uh, I hung my license with him. And his goal is to make 100 millionaires. Um, again, I wasn't ready for it. Um, and he knew that. So he did a wholesaling course. I didn't have the money at the time. I borrowed money to go to this course because I wanted to be a part of whatever he was doing. It was $5,000 that I borrowed against a credit card and from a family member. And I did, it was like a fire hose. I'd never made a cold call in my life. And, but I took that information. I started sending out text blasts and I was still working at my restaurant job. And um, I thought I found a deal. Uh, somebody on this team said, reach out to this guy. I reached out to this guy. He said he would take a look at it. 
And mind you, this whole time I'm looking for sober livings, calling uh, for rent by owners, calling Zillow's, doing all these things, trying my hardest to get a sober living uh, to rent to let me do this business. And everybody is telling me uh, no, no, no. Um, that guy who I sent a deal to, an hour later I'm at my restaurant job, this guy walks in, dozen uh, bouquet of roses, and I'm like, why does he look familiar? It was the guy who I sent the deal to. Um, and he sat in somebody else's section. I paid that server to wait on that gentleman. Uh, that gentleman now is uh, one of my best friends. He is a mentor, and I probably have uh, 30 of his 30 of his houses, um, and I've bought 10 houses from him personally. And that's just how God works in my life and being persistent and speaking stuff into existence and um, the laws of attraction. The more you talk about it, the more it comes to you. So with, with deciding kind of on, on sober li living as a strategy, was that kind of always the plan? Was it the service and kind of, you know, you achieve what you achieve with your sobriety, uh, sobriety, which I can't say that word. I'm really struggling with it. Was it, um, was it then wanting to be in service and, and wanting to help other people? Is it that simple? Um, I had been sober six years at this point. Once I got my real estate license, it was always a point to help people. And I had been uh, there my first sober living I went to, I was fresh out of rehab, no job, no experience, no nothing, no money. And somebody gave me an opportunity on a promise to pay and gave me a bed in hopes that I'd get a job and pay him back. And I am so thankful for that opportunity because it got me to where I am now. And the reason I wanted to become a real estate agent, I didn't want to have to depend on anybody to tell me what a good deal was, what a good area was. And uh, I knew I was going to be buying homes eventually and saving that 3% would definitely help. So I wanted my own knowledge and not have to depend on anybody. On anybody. No, I really like that. And um, if, if you wouldn't mind, I think what would be interesting is, is kind of contrasting, um, obviously, you know, being in, in, the, in the space of addiction and then moving into kind of what you do now is that it, do you see kind of similar traits but in a positive light kind of applied to real estate is there kind of a you know really getting in depth with things or is that kind of uh, too broad um it might be a little bit too broad but i see the glimmer in some of these guys eyes that i'm helping um again they came from the streets they had a hustle they have ambitions they just don't know which direction to point it or which way to go they need some guidance uh, when you're in AA, um, you're, it's, it's, I can plug in the two, but AA teaches you the same thing that business books, all of these business books that you read, it is freely giving away, not expecting anything in return. So when you get to AA, you sponsor people and I sponsor guys and they see where I'm at. They want what I have. Um, so Bernie, you're a um, managing member of Forge Equity Group, right? That's correct. Um, so we're going to get into that. I want to find out about Forge. I want to find out about what you're doing, um, all that good stuff. But first, I want to kind of get your your background, what you're doing now, but also kind of where you've where you've come from and, and kind of the, the why of real estate. Well, that's a long, long story, but I'll try to keep it short. Um, I didn't even dip my toes into the water of real estate until I was 40 years old. And so... Um, I'm sure there's lots of people out there that were in my shoes and in my head, I think I always thought real estate was for, you know, rich people 
and so, uh, and I was never rich, um, still not there, <laughs> but I, I just never, uh, done anything with it at all. And, uh, ran into a friend, uh, my wife and I had, uh, some friends, uh, through the, through our church and they got into buy and hold, uh, rental properties and they were doing it in Tennessee, which is the price points, uh, then even now, but especially then were really low. And we were just kind of stunned. We're like, wow, we, we might be able to do something like this. And, you know, I think, um, God had kind of just worked things out in our life to bring us to that point. We were already feeling the need to invest and do something uh, to get our money working for us because it was always next year, next year, next year, next year. And after 15 years, it's like, you know, we got to do something. We now have two or three kids. We uh, are approaching the fourth floor of life, you know, the 40s, and we have to take action. And that kind of led to it. And in conjunction with that, just taking care of our family and preparing for retirement one day in the future. Uh, we also wanted to be very generous um, to give to the cause of Christ and be generous to people in our life. And we were not really able to do that because uh, of funds. And so um, for all those reasons, they all kind of just happened all at once. Um, perfect storm type of thing. And we said, you know what, we got to jump into some type of investment, and at that time, real estate uh, was just in the forefront. That that's incredible. I love the reasoning there, like the the giving back, and um, the the sense of kind of a a, a bigger purpose, or, or kind of a sense of investing in that community aspect is is really interesting. And I, I for one, I had that initial journey, and it sounds like similar kind of time frames, really. Mm-hmm. where i i was focused on a number i want to earn this much a month i want to and then over the last couple of years and through education coaching i've pivoted i want to add value to people i want to contribute to communities i want to make money sure but those <laughs> things can coexist that's really interesting did you have to kind of go through that process to to kind of marry up those those different um kind of viewpoints um I think uh, at some level, I never had a number in my head. I never said I want to earn so much money per month or per year. Uh, honestly, we were just uh, we had been giving a lot uh, through our church um, and to the cause of missions worldwide as well as local ministry. Uh, and we realized that uh, as we kept increasing that number each year, that we were going to hit a point at which we either had to stop increasing. Or uh, we had to find some way to make more money. And then also in the back of our heads was the idea that, you know what, we can't just be living paycheck to paycheck or month to month. At some point, we need to be in to take care of our family finances uh, so that we're not a burden uh, on our church or on our family uh, in the later years of our life. And so, um, yeah, it was kind of a merging of the two. And, you know, I always have to come back to center. Uh, I, I like to say I'm as greedy as the next guy. Uh, the love of money is an allure that you have to fight. Uh, and the best way to fight that is to give. And so periodically, I just kind of have to come back to center and say, you know, uh, it doesn't really matter how much money I have. Uh, if you haven't been able to tell already, I'm obviously um, – I, I believe in God and I have a relationship with Jesus Christ and that kind of guides uh, my life and what I do. And Jesus said, what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? And so at the end of the day, 
Money is just a tool. Uh, I enjoy using it, uh, believe me, especially when it comes to food, but um, it's not the end-all, be-all. There has to be, like you said, a greater purpose. Bernie, and I, I think what's really interesting, and that that shines through for me, and I'm thinking back to a friend of mine who did extremely well for himself, mm-hmm. earned, you know, that that six figures a month I think he got up to, but was miserable because his lifestyle was just eroded into into kind of nothing. It was just work. And um, he actually then kind of dialed all that back and, and, and you sure. know, significantly de- decreased his earnings to get the life he wanted. And, sure. that, you know, there's there's always that kind of rich person that says it's not all about the money, but that it, it, it is kind of right. It's, <laughs> it's kind of OK to say it's not about the money. There's there's something more that's uh, super interesting in terms of the, then the educational piece. So how did you kind of get educated, get up to speed on on kind of the investing and the money yeah. side of things? Sure. Um, I think um, we're very similar to a lot of people. At the beginning, we had some time and some willingness to invest uh, energy into learning and no money. And so I did everything I could that was free. I reached out to my friends uh, that I told you about. My wife and I really, we had a couple meetings with them, kind of learned how they were doing it and just decided to try copycatting and it worked. We ended up getting three or four uh, rental homes in the Southeast, in Georgia actually. And, um, but I began to consume podcasts and I first was introduced to bigger pockets and, you know, one thing leads to another, you get virtual connections, uh, with people. And I really got hooked on, uh, my mentor, my, my current mentor mentorship program, Michael Block. And I really, uh, kind of latched onto him and his messaging. And I tried to copy everything, learn everything I could again for free. Uh, but I reached a point when I was starting to talk to brokers and we were talking about deals, you know, in the $700,000 million range, which for some people is nothing. Uh, but for me at the time, uh, $100 swing in our monthly budget was a big deal. And so to talk about those kind of numbers was is getting a little bit scary. Um, and I realized that, you know, I got one shot to do this right or I'm going to put my family behind by a decade and so uh, financially. And so uh, eventually the other investments uh, really paid off. We were able to refinance, do a cash out refinance. They had appreciated in six months enough that we pulled all of our original investment out. So we had a little bit of capital to work with and we used a chunk of that capital to actually pay for the mentorship program with Michael Blanc and learned how to syndicate apartment complexes. And that was really the journey. We kind of went from single family home to uh, commercial multifamily and the education was free and everything I get my hands on at first. And eventually we actually paid for, um, I guess you would call personal growth education. That, that's such a good tip. I, I kind of was quick to jump to paying for education Mm-hmm. And then I realized, you know, just just going on YouTube and Googling something and finding the experts and kind of consuming their content. Sure. There's a lot of great content out there. And then also there's a ton of good books. And you said Bigger Pockets, you know, pretty much everything they publish is is worth reading if you're interested in that field. Right. Yep. No, I agree. Um, so there's... Go ahead. No, go for it. Uh, I, I was just going to say that, you know, there's tons and tons of books out there. And I think what happens if you are interested in, in this field or in any field, 
uh, you find those voices that kind of resonate with you. And I would just dive deep into that. Like I wouldn't fight too hard to like push through a book you hate or a podcast you don't enjoy. Find the ones that resonate with you that you enjoy and, you know, just kind of dive deep. And that's, that's what I did. And it seems to be working out. That's always good. How did you find your your mentor? Was it was it through that kind of process, or was there a conscious decision of I need a mentor? I'm going to go and kind of interview mentors. Um, no, it was not conscious at first. Um, I think as you grow in any field, but let's talk you know real estate for right now. You you kind of learn those voices again that appeal to you and resonate with you uh, that make you feel empowered like you can do it you know we've all heard those podcasts or read those books where you just feel like it's impossible I'll never succeed um, and I don't I kind of let those go because it doesn't help me and I find those uh, podcasts and, and messaging that empowers me and so um, I think I would say my mentor or mentors actually were present without me knowing it I just kept going back to um, those podcasts those books the, that information and eventually, excuse me, <clears throat> eventually I was pitched to actually um, look for uh, formal mentorship. And at that point, it was like, okay, I need, I see, I need an actual person that I engage to help me through this process. And so when we signed up for uh, that program, uh, we got an official mentor. He's been great. Uh, he's his friend today. Uh, we haven't officially done mentorship for probably two or three years. Uh, but I still consider him, uh, my mentor and my coach. I call him with, you know, big problems. Uh, we share what we're doing in the real estate space and I'd love, to, I, I actually work with him on one of my deals and I would love to do more in the future. That's so cool. Isn't it? When, a, when a mentor does deals with you, that's like when you know, they're not some internet personality, just pumping out content, which, uh, is is always interesting when you get to that point of like oh they're going to co-invest sweet there's there's putting belief in you yeah no it and honestly i'd say that was probably the biggest thing uh the biggest positive about my mentorship uh is that my coach his name is drew whitson uh he's with endurance capital uh he also works uh well through the michael blanc programs but he um he believed in me and he proved it when he when I asked him to be a part of my deal. He said yes. He came in as the, as the KP, uh, and then let he let me and my partners, who were all newbies, he let us run the syndication and learn on the job. Wow. Uh, he was there kind of to oversee and to watch, uh, but by and large, he just turned us loose, and uh, it's been a great partnership. That's incredible. Yeah, I love that. That's that's true mentorship. That's true. Like helping your student grow by uh by working with them and letting them run but not run too far i guess this is probably the the analogy yeah. um in terms of your in terms of your faith and in terms of kind of that area of 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 kind of who you are is there kind of lessons or, or kind of an overlay of, of of how that's helped guide you kind of through the real estate process I would say 100%. Um, I, I appreciate you, by the way, uh, inviting me to be on your podcast. Uh, I, I'm very thankful and grateful for that and for this opportunity. Um, but I feel kind of like it's not fair sometimes uh, to present myself as someone who has done well or succeeded in some way because uh, I feel like God's been on my side. And so it's kind of not fair. It's, you know, I have 
uh, I have, you know, God helping me. And, you know, I guess uh, I feel it's not like all of myself. I, I'm fumbling for my words a little bit. Um, I guess I feel that I have an advantage. And it. I, I believe that totally my faith uh, in God has guided me every step of this, uh, this journey. Uh, number one, getting into it in the first place. And then number two, just helping me make wise decisions and seek out good counsel uh, and not get into major trouble. Um, there's really nothing different about me than anyone else. Um, there are operators and people that have failed miserably. Uh, even some of the greatest successful people in the world, you look at the inventors, Thomas Edison, Samuel Morse, other guys, uh, they failed and failed and failed and failed before they succeed. Oh, my God. Um lessons learned well i mean we talked about this earlier kyle you know with your, your spouse of just doing the roles and responsibilities and and trying to be on that right page with your uh, with your spouse and also avoiding the burnout so i think it's really important you know to to It, I, I respect the grind people who work on their business all the time but you really have to take the time to relax and disconnect um because and, and take a vacation because i think that as entrepreneurs and as people who um you know as entrepreneurs in general i think that we just need more vacation time because our minds are always rolling they're always happening so to take time with family is is really important uh because we did we did learn the hard way from that right through burnouts um and um what else in terms of business mindset like I could talk mindset for a while I'm actually writing a book right now and I'm I'm almost done I'm ready to launch this soon um so I'd have to I, I feel like I have to take out my book and like read through it because I talk about that but now it's not coming to me um it's a great great segue into books because you know in this business it seems like a lot of us are readers and you mentioned a little bit earlier oh, yeah. that you're a reader as well to put you on the spot You know, if I could ask you to throw out a couple of titles, you know, something that's maybe been impactful for you and uh, what titles would you share with our audience? Well, the the most common and almost annoying one that everyone hears about is a rich dad, poor dad. It's, it's like a thing. I think it's like a rite of passage for every investor here. Um, so obviously that one was a big uh, shocker because we were... We were building our third property uh, when I was about to lose it. And I was like, I can't do this anymore. You know, uh, it was too much. And uh, my husband was like, okay, let's take a vacation. Let's relax. So we went on a vacation and he kind of slipped that book to me during the trip. And it's like, you should read this, babe. And so I read it and at the end of the trip. It's like, oh my God, let's do this. <laughs> so that one was definitely an impactful one. And to anyone who starts, I tell them, read this book first, then let's talk. Um, after that, a One other that really uh, helped me was the, um, uh, it's a Canadian book. So obviously it's probably not really beneficial to like the U.S. Uh, people who are listening, but it's about the market downturn and the market cycles. And it's written by Don Campbell. It's, I don't remember the title. Um, I can, I can find it there in a couple minutes, but um, it's, it talks about the cycles of the markets and, and like what to look through, what to look for before a market downturn, uh, what to expect and kind of how to prepare for it. So I read this 
before COVID, just before COVID happened. Um, during that winter, I read it and I found a lot of things in there. We were like preparing our portfolio. We're like the, the market's been high for a few years now. I feel like we should be preparing. So we did a couple of things to prepare our portfolio for it. And then COVID happened. You're like, oh my God, like it's a good thing that we were, you know, we were, we had read that book, but then the market kept going up, which is, didn't, I didn't think that's what it was going to happen. Uh, but you know, I think that one was a really good book. I think even though, even if you're in the U.S., it's a good book to read because the market cycles are the same whether you're in Canada or, or in the States, right? Um, so I'll find that title and I'll uh, I'll let you guys know in a couple minutes there. We can circle back to that. And there's a there's a book, very similar book by Jay Scott, and I can't remember the title of that, but I've just been finished listening to it. And it's all about the, the cycle of the market, the peaks, the lows, and how to um, kind of make the most of those peaks and, and troughs. So that's kind of interesting. And we need to, Kyle, we need a, a button or a, a noise when Rich Dad, Poor Dad's mentioned. Right. Oh, that's a good yeah. And I, I'm the same. I'm the same. It was, uh, <laughs> it was the one I read that, that cl- uh, clicked with me. Um, we've asked yeah. this question a few times, Kyle, right? Which is why that book? Yes. What What is it in that book that kind of resonates? It, it, to me, it was just realizing how um, just just the how like education and stuff, it's not all that it's cracked up to be. And, and as much and that's not true because. I am a very big advocate of, of staying educated. I think it's really, really important to stay educated, especially in the business that you are doing. You know, you you stay, you you want to stay up to date with whatever business you're you're running, um, and to always stay educated, never be this, never think you're the smartest person in the room or anything like that. Um, but it's just like it was an eye opener to see that even though someone may have a huge education that they may not have that income that comes with it too. So, or, or the financial education that comes with it. So it was just the pivot of how to shift your mindset around that and realize that financial education is a thing and you need to study that on its own. Right. (laughs) And creating like, yeah, just investing in general is really important. So my my take and i was thinking about this the other day and i need to re-listen to that book or reread it um, my take on it was um through, throughout school i feel like i was conditioned that over on one side is creativity and arts over on the other side is math business science and the two can never meet and actually what i really think processing and thinking about rich dad poor dad what really got me thinking was that you know there's creativity in business and solving problems and the ability to solve problems is intrinsic to creativity or creativity is intrinsic to solving problems. And that's yeah. so inter- interlinked with being an entrepreneur, being an investor. And and that kind of, I, that was never connected at school. And that was kind of really interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah you're right. That was, that was super deep. I actually really, I like that. Kind deep. of abstract. <laughs> I've had a coffee. I'm, I'm revved up. <laughs> you're I, good no, to I go. Like that was really good. I guess I hadn't thought about it that way. That's good. I uh, I found the book uh, to its um, uh, Secrets of the Canadian Real Estate Cycle with Don Campbell. So I read that book twice because I just thought that there was a lot of good little nuggets in there, you know, some things to, to keep in mind. Um, on the on the subject of wins, you know, I because I'm so interested in what it is that you and Rob are doing, um, would you be willing or able to, again, putting you on the spot, to pick out one of your deals which has been the most profitable um, or the most success, maybe, maybe you just love the building so much and it's not the most profitable, which one of your deals would you consider to be your perfect? And can you talk us through it? Such as how much did the lot cost? 
maybe a price per square footage cost and what you ended up renting these for? Uh, yeah, so um, I could tell you about two deals. Uh, well, one actually was the traditional burr. That one was an amazing, uh, profitable deal. But at the same time, it was just with the timing of the market that we bought it just before the the, the, the peaks of, of the market in COVID there. And then we sold them. Uh, it was a side-by-side duplex we renovated. Um, and then we, we severed it and sold off one side and then sold off the other side. And we basically doubled uh, what we had paid for it. Uh, but again, it was just kind of the timing of the market and taking advantage of the high values. Um, for a construction site, I think it was one of our fourplex that we built again during COVID, but we had a lot of, we had the lot purchased, uh, for $80,000 and, um, that one we had to put in a septic field and the, 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 it's funny because like thinking about it, you think that our cost would have been a lot higher, but for some reason, because Rob was able to get in there and do a lot of work himself, um, we ended up being able to stay at, um, I think cost of construction was about 600,000. Um, and so, and with that, we even pulled out some money for him to pay him back the money we had set aside for, you know, hiring trades. Um, and it was valued initially we had a lower value because we had it valued before the high peaks again of COVID with COVID that same building right in front, somebody like we, we sold our plans to someone and somebody uh, built the same building in front. He had it evaluated a year later for 300 or 400,000 more than we did. Um, so like it was valued at 1.3, right? So it's almost like if our ARV was at 50% when we built it. Um, so that one was, was really good. And, uh, right now they're even, the rents are below market value because again, it was just the timing of the market, but we, we rented the top units for 1650, but they could go for 1900 today. Um, and bottom units are, I have one bottom unit for sixteen fifty because we had a turnover. I was able to raise the rents, and the other one at fifteen hundred. Um, so that one cash flows. It, it cash flows really well. It's a, I think it's about two thousand dollars a month. That's impressive stuff. Um, in terms of if you had to start today, is there anything you'd do differently? Um, and you know you're you're killing it those numbers are amazing so I appreciate that's a loaded question um, but I guess knowing what you know about the market or, or kind of your assumptions of the market is there a different approach you take today? Um, I'm actually pretty happy with how things went we learned from whatever went wrong and I'm happy we did so um, maybe I would have tried to scale quicker um we you know we were taking it easy at first we were doing single family homes but it's because we were we didn't have the the uh the down payments to to have larger loans to do duplexes and stuff so like the first time we wanted to build something we wanted it to be a duplex but it had to be a single family unit and we eventually converted to a duplex later but i'm still happy we did it that way because it was our stepping stone it was our way of forcing ourselves into the investment market um so but i think yeah just trying to scale faster trying to focus more on doing uh multifamily because it is quicker to scale from multifamilies than it is from uh, single family homes, right? So uh, the first couple of homes we built were singles and we ended up selling those because they weren't profitable enough. But at the same time, we recycled that capital into other deals. Um, so it still made sense. I'm, I'm still happy with all our decisions. Um, but I think I would have hired a property manager faster because that's a game changer. That's lovely. <laughs> <laughs> um, that and the employee too probably would have done it faster. Yeah. A lot of times, like, I don't, you don't just like hit somebody with, hey, Kyle, will you sell or finance this for me? 
at that point, Kyle don't know. No. Why would he sell or finance that? His answer is always going to be no. Um, unless he's like, you're, you're getting this random dude that actually understands it, which is pretty rare. So I'll give you a real life example. I, I'm working on a, a lead I actually found uh, off market. A guy wants to sell his 12 unit apartment complex like 45 minutes away from me. Um, so I hit him up. It's just, I start off with some basic, you know, uh, rapport building. I'm asking about his life, what he's doing, how he got into this, why he decided real estate, almost like a podcast interview, really. Like I'm treating him like an interview, right? And I'm just asking him questions and we're laughing. You know, that's a big key. If you can get him to laugh, you're kind of loosening him up. And then I, and then I try to find out, do they have a loan on the property? Turns out he doesn't have a loan on the property. Great. Um, cause if they do, then you got to figure out, is it worth it to pay their loan off? And is there enough of a balance that they could carry and does that make sense? And a lot of times it doesn't. So he has no loan. And then I go, well, you know, I mean, I don't, I don't know that we're going to be able to put together a deal, but let's just say that if you and I came to, together and we had terms that were, that made it so you could win and I could win, you know, would you entertain being the bank? If I gave you some money down and made you some payments. Would you, would you entertain being the bank? And his answer was, well, I mean, maybe let's talk about it, but that's very different than just coming right at it. Hey, you, will you sell or finance? I see a lot of people do that. Um, but now we have a relationship. You know, I've gotten him to laugh a couple of times. Uh, here's another little trick I do too. The more times you can, if you can increase the frequency in which you've connected with that person, you build your trust each time. So like I called him today at lunch. I didn't, I wasn't ready to make my offer. I haven't even done all my due diligence, but I called him just to say, Hey, you know, uh, I put a little bit more thought into this. I'm waiting for my wife to get here. We're going to have some coffee. But, um, you know, if I gave you 80 grand down, you don't have to have an answer by the way, but if I gave you 80 grand down and we did some monthly payments, like, is this in the realm of like, are we on the right path or are you completely, you know, against that? And I like to throw that in like a negative way for them out. Like you're, you're probably completely against that. Oh no, I'm not, I'm not completely against that. We just need to, I just need to know what the payment's going to be. Okay, cool. But I didn't need to have that conversation, but it increased the frequency in which I was connecting with. So now when I call him tonight, I've had one more call underneath my belt. I've talked to him one more time. So yeah, we'll, we'll call him tonight and we'll see what happens. Yeah, then that's, you hit on so many super important pieces of seller financing. And John and I have been on a seller financing kick here for these last, shoot, I don't know, John, what has it been? Like two or three months now, we've been really mm -hmm. hammering out the, the creative finance stuff, but the rapport building is everything. You know, if you can figure out how to make this about them and less about you, you know, instead of, you know, pulling the pin on that grenade and chucking it in there and saying, hey, will you take seller financing? Because like you said, it's nine, nine and a half times out of 10, they're going to say no. Yeah. But um, another thing, and to add to what you're saying is, is you know, what Noah is telling everybody is that he's direct to the seller on most of these things. It is so stinking difficult to try to negotiate a seller financing deal when you have an intermediary, a, for example, a real estate broker. Most of them have no idea. I mean, there, there's a lot of them out there that, that know what the concept is, but they don't understand why this is beneficial for everybody. And... Um, well, and there's some other things that I would get into there, but let's just say that it's just difficult when you've got an intermediary there. So trying to trying to go you, for the listeners, when you hear that direct to seller, you're either talking about a wholesaler or you're talking about a buyer who's actually directly speaking to the seller. And it makes all the difference in the world with negotiations because negotiation is an art form. It is not about writing down an LOI, shipping it off to them and keeping your fingers crossed. There's so much more to it to, to that because people like to do business with people that they like. It's just that simple. And if you get them to like you and you like them and you guys can, because essentially you're marrying this person for as long as this, this seller note's going to be in existence. You got to talk to them. You got to send them checks. 
you know, and, and check-ins and this, that, and the other. And so it, it's, it's super, super important. So, um, yeah, we really appreciate you sharing all that stuff, Noah. Um, so the financing stuff you're, you're going forward, you're, you're looking for seller financing for the bigger, the bigger things. Um, are you, I know you said you're not flipping in Boise anymore, but are, are, you said maybe some, some cheaper stuff in different markets. Have you identified other markets that you're kind of looking at? What part of the United States do you like? Yeah, there's, I mean, the Midwest is pretty cool because they're just, they're just consistent. They don't appreciate a lot, but they don't fluctuate a lot. Their, their home prices have really never gone above 300 grand for a medium home price. And so they're just like safe, but there's also not, there's no, there's not, I don't see the opportunities as much to like hit a home run deal. Like there's not, there's, I don't think there's a lot of people out there making a hundred thousand dollars on a, on a single family home flip in Indiana. Um, it's out, I mean, I'm sure they've done it, but, um, so, I mean, I'm, I've already invested in South Bend, Indiana. I have some long-term rentals there. So the flip market, uh, is alive and well there. I mean, they, they, I, I'm a part of their Facebook groups and stuff like that. And I keep in contact with some people out there and they didn't have this massive fluctuation like we did. They also didn't get all the, you know, extra $20,000 on this house. And well, we made 30 more on this house. We had that here, but then we also, you know, it, it nosedived and I wasn't paying attention enough. I didn't have. Uh, an understanding of which data points I should have been following and watching. Um, but they've just been consistent, man. Those guys have been out there just constantly making 25 grand on a house, 30 grand on a house, 25 grand on a house, 20 grand on a house. And so they just haven't slowed down. So I like Indy. There's another market that I've uh, been looking at uh, or two more. Um, I like the state of Alabama. Uh, they, they're having some upticks and they've got some good deals going on out there. I see and some good wholesalers that I've been starting to build some connections with. Um, and then there's a girl on my podcast that's like, really blown up in uh around the new orleans area uh, her name's dom and uh dominique um i think her last name is gunderson if you guys want to check her out but i've been really impressed with her man she's taken down probably like four or five deals a month right now all from wholesalers no direct to seller marketing so yeah those are i mean those three states i think have some potential epic i think we need to get you on again for a wholesaling masterclass, class noah that'd be fun man yeah i'll come back anytime what do you think, Kyle? Kyle's nodding. Stinking <laughs> microphone mute button. I, every single episode, man, it, it hit. It gets it me every one time. time. I one just time. can't shut it off. It just drives me nuts. Yeah, it's okay. Noah can come back. That's fine. Okay, fine. Well, we got the we got the blessing from. <laughs> man, Kyle. We'd love to have you back, Noah. And, and and man, you and I have had so many conversations about everything from mindset to business to everything, life in general. So. There's not really a whole lot out there that I don't think Noah could fill up an hour of, of really good, solid content about. So absolutely, we'd love to have you back. BSing, so. Me too. I yeah, can fill, I can fill up the times, man. Give me the slides. <laughs> <laughs> love that. And so, Noah, in terms of what's next, what does that look like for you? Like, what what are you you're, you're working on those new markets? Is there a you mentioned boutique hotel, right? What is well, really, what's that? Yeah, yeah. What does that look like? We're close on one, man. Um, I just, I don't know if we're going to end up taking it down. Um, you know, Kyle brought up a great point earlier. Had I got, had I been able to con been in contact with or get in contact with the seller directly earlier on and just told the broker, look, dude, we'll pay you the commission no matter what, but I need to have a relationship with this lady. Um, I think the deal would be going better. So we're on like our fourth draft of the LOI. I don't even think I like the terms anymore but I'm so far invested into this that we're just going to keep going to see if it works out. I mean, I haven't even visited it. Um, and I haven't gone like super, super deep on the data yet. Cause I'm trying to be careful of how I'm spending my time. Mm -hmm. But, um, 
that's, I mean, the, those type of deals are what's next for me for sure. And if this one doesn't work out, I've learned so much from it that I think the next one will be, I'll, I'll go so much faster through it. Like I, this is probably the most serious I've ever gotten um, as far as going deep into one. But I mean, I'll give you some context on it. So like my original LOI was at 1.7 with a seven-year owner carry at 5% uh, interest amortized over 30 years. And we knew going in there that there was no way she was going to accept 1.7. But I also knew that no matter what I offered, she was going to counter. So I'm like, I'm the only offer. Turns out that 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 offer pissed her off a lot more than I thought. And she was really upset by it. So I don't, I don't know, man, we should, I, mean, I, I should have just hopped on the phone with her and just asked for a meeting because the one thing you got to remember too, like, I think this applies to any of these assets where they're owner operated. Um, anytime the owner's boots on the ground, they have an emotional connection and they can take offense to an offer that doesn't match the, the value in their mind when they don't know you. And that's what I kept telling these guys, man, I, I've told them probably like four or five times. I'm like, you guys are not communicating to her that I am the best buyer for two reasons. One, I'm gonna continue her legacy and we're gonna make this thing a freaking awesome boutique motel. And we're not devaluing what she's done. She's already done a great job, but we're gonna continue it. And we're gonna put all of our effort into making sure that her legacy just gets to implode, like explodes in that market. And number two, like we actually care. Like we're not some big corporate hedge fund that's gonna come in and standardize every single room and make a super boring pen all the walls white. Just that way we can get our freaking 4% return. Like that's not, we don't, that's not what's impactful to us. Like if I do a boutique motel in a community, I want it to impact the community and I want people to, to benefit from what I do. Um, and that's right. You know, there's a multitude of reasons like we can go really deep there, but we'll kind of skip over that. So uh, yeah, she countered back at 1.9, uh, five year balloon, 5.5% uh, interest. And uh, I just don't know that I'm willing to, it's that she's she's actually still okay with the 30 year am which is pretty funny because that like really shrinks that payment down I, i'm okay with all the terms but i'm not i don't really like the 1.9 purchase price it just it 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 makes my downside a little bit more risky because if that market turns if we continue to go downhill as a nation which mm -hmm. we don't need to get into all that but um it makes it, it'll make it hard for me to exit that deal in like five years or refinance it i'll have to bring either an infusion of cash or whatever but the cash flow is so good, you know? I mean, there's there's like $6,000 a month in net cash flow with those terms, with that purchase price, um, which means over a five-year period of time, we will have made back pretty much all of the money we will have invested into it. So in five years, we could, if we don't take the cash flow, we basically just pay back our down payment to ourselves. Thank you for listening to the Investories Podcast. We all have a story. What's yours? The Investories Podcast.